Let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are uh, in the third week of a series through this ancient letter. Actually, uh, the earliest piece of Christian writing that we have, Paul's first epistle. And um, we are just taking these couple months to move through this, uh, this letter, ch- chunk by chunk. And uh, Ken got us through the first chapter over the last couple weeks, so one down, four to go. And we're going to pick up in chapter two this morning. First Thessalonians chapter two. And... Um, I'll just, I'll just read it. It's a big chunk, and I'll be honest, it's sort of a, a strange chunk of Scripture. Uh, one of the things that I like about preaching through books of the Bible is that you come to passages that, as a preacher, you probably typically wouldn't choose to preach on. But they are Scripture, and God breathed and inspired and authoritative. And so this one is a really interesting passage, um, both as a reader and as a community trying to submit to, uh, to the scriptures. And so we'll read the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority, instead we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of our God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. All right, we'll pause there. A lot of good stuff in there, but it probably feels like, uh, for most of us, that we walked into a movie 45 minutes after it started, right? And you kind of get this sense, there's a whole bunch of backstory and context that Paul is uh, addressing here that we're not really caught up in. And so there's this tense kind of uh, appeal that's happening, but we're not real sure what's going on. Well, We're not told exactly all the details, but there's a lot that we can gather. And so here's the first thing that we need to know. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, a common sight would be someone called a sophist, where we get the word sophisticated or sophomore, because they're so sophisticated, right? A sophist is essentially a traveling teacher that would be kind of a cross between a philosopher and a street entertainer. They would move from town to town 
and they would set up on a street corner in a town hall, and they would get up and begin to speak. And they would speak about philosophy and theology and religion and politics, but they would do it in an entertaining way and using kind of smooth talk and big words and emotional language. They would draw a crowd. Now, of course, this is before all of our modern forms of entertainment. And so people would flock to come and see the sophist that was traveling through town. And they would stay for hours and listen to to the smooth words. But the sophist had a bad reputation amongst many in the society. Because what he would often do is once he gets the crowd eating out of his hand, so to speak, he would essentially say, well, now that I've taught you something, now that I've given you this piece of knowledge or wisdom or insight, uh, let's go ahead and pass the offering bucket, right? And it was the idea that, uh, that we, were, we as the crowd are now indebted to this teacher for his wisdom. And so the teacher would then expect to be paid in return. And not just financially, but oftentimes the sophist would then kind of examine the crowd and find a good-looking young lady or even young man and lure him and and take advantage of her or him. And so a horrible reputation. In some ways, the sophists might remind us of corrupt politicians or sleazy televangelists uh, of our day, right? They're bad dudes. So that was common in the world that Paul was writing to and that this community of Christ followers in Thessalonica lived in. They would have these very manipulative, greedy, sleazy, traveling street preachers. And it would appear that those are the kinds of accusations that are being uh, said about Paul, that he can't be trusted He's essentially defending himself in chapter 2 against accusations of acting like a sophist. And he specifically nails down on a couple of them. In verse 3, he goes, "Uh, I want to make sure this appeal, that it doesn't spring from error or impure motives. We're not trying to trick you. The word impure, it kind of has sexual connotations, right? There's sexual impurity that's driving his ministry and his message. And then later on in in verse 9 and 10, he talks about how hard he and his traveling companions worked. We know Paul was a tent maker, right? He was a, a craftsman. He provided for himself. And he says, I could have taken an offering, but instead I decided to take financial responsibility for my own needs so as not to be a burden to any of you. So he's going, um, yeah. People are accusing me of trying to get into your wallets and get into your bedrooms. And he spends this whole chapter, really a big part of it, um, essentially trying to defend himself, making a case that this, these accusations are not true. Okay? And so he's writing a letter, if you don't know, to a young church, a very early Christian community in the city of Thessalonica, And this church is facing persecution. It doesn't go really well when you pledge your allegiance to Jesus over Caesar. And so political, religious opposition from the outside. Paul had traveled to Thessalonica as a church planter, an apostle. He preaches the gospel of Jesus there. 
and the birth of this church uh, occurs. Then Paul's forced to flee from Thessalonica. He's away, and while he's gone, essentially this smear campaign is unleashed on him, where some of his opponents are saying all kinds of stuff, that he's a sophist, that he's a manipulator, that he's greedy, that he just wants your money or your body or something like that. So it's really hard for us to imagine, but try, if you will, that there was a time when political and religious leaders slandered each other in order to gain power. I know that's hard to imagine. Thankfully, we've evolved since then, right? And so in chapter 2, we essentially have, in some ways, a courtroom scene where Paul's accused of acting like a sophist, of being a manipulator and greedy, And this is his self-defense. And he's essentially responding to these charges that have come against him by those that are trying to discredit his message. And what we just read is him saying, yeah, I know what kinds of things people are saying about me. I know the accusations. I know the charges. And here's what I have to say about it. And so you can see that he specifically addresses a few of them and just kind of goes, um, yeah, it's not true. Now notice, as he kind of makes this legal defense, it doesn't sound as stiff and as legal as we might expect. He doesn't create a whole bunch of pieces of evidence of dates and times and alibis and that sort of thing in order to clear his name. What does he do? He appeals to the relationship that he has with these people. His tone here, even though he is facing extreme heat from his haters, his tone here is tender and familial. Listen to the language and and the tone that he uses. He doesn't appeal to ladies and gentlemen of the jury, does he? Who does he speak to? You know, verse 1, brothers and sisters, Twice in the passage, 16 times in the book, Paul makes sure that his recipients know this is how he sees them. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. We've been adopted by the same father, and that makes us siblings. And so Paul's language, as he argues against these arguments against him, starts with this familial tone, that we are family. He uses these metaphors of family even more, right? In verse 7, he's like, I was like a nursing mother caring for her children. And in verse 11, I was like a wise father teaching and instructing you. Paul's going, so yeah, you can paint me as a sophist or as a televangelist or as a corrupt politician, but I've been here as a mother, as a father, as a brother, as a sister, giving myself to you, sharing my life with you, being with you. And notice that he repeatedly uses this phrase, you know. In verse 1, you know. In verse 2, you know. In verse 5, in verse 11, in verse 9, he says, you remember. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. What's he doing? He's saying, you don't need to dig through the archives to find out what I was up to. He's like, you know. 
You were there. I was with you. We were together. You saw me. We were in each other's homes. We were sharing meals. He's like, you know, brothers and sisters. And so there's this sense that Paul defends himself against these accusations simply based on the relationship he has with these people and the life that he and his companions lived while he was with them. Now, i got to be honest, when I, maybe and when you were hearing this passage as well and reading it, you're going, man, Paul says some pretty sweet stuff about himself. <laughs> right? Like, how holy and righteous and blameless I was. <laughs> and how my motives were totally pure. And how I lived such a good life among you. Um... As somebody who's in a position of spiritual leadership, if I got up here and said that to you guys in the cynical Northwest, it's not going to go well, right? I'm like, hey, you guys want to know how to follow Jesus? Look at me. I've got it. Just do everything I do. I do it for the right reasons all the time. You could call me holy, <laughs> blameless, righteous. That sounds about right, right? Like for us as modern readers, we're going, man, that's... It's crazy. And it is. It's this beautiful picture where Paul's actually able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you want to know what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, joining God on his mission in the world? He goes, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. That's what we were doing when we were with you. And you know that. You saw that. We never ask for money. We never ask for hookups, anything like that. We gave ourselves fully to the mission of God. It's a beautiful thing, and I hope that all of us would hope that one day we would be able to say that to each other and to those around us. And so that's what's going on in this passage. Just to give us a sense of context, that's what this is about when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, what can we learn from it? I think that what we have here, as Paul is giving this defense for why he is wholly blameless and righteous, we have some really powerful insights into what it means to be a Christian leader. Now, some of us think of ourselves as Christian leaders, and others of us don't. Now, when you're a pastor or work for a church or a nonprofit or a ministry organization, you kind of tend to think of yourself that way more often. But what I would argue is that all of us who are followers of Jesus are called to not just be followers, but to be leaders as well. And when I say a Christian leader, I simply mean somebody who is striving to steward his or her life for the sake of influencing others towards Christ and his kingdom. Somebody who's stewarding their life to influence others for Christ and his kingdom. And so leadership happens in the context of, yeah, church and ministry and missions, but it happens in the context of home, marriage, family, friendship. It happens in the context of community, relationships. It happens in the context of work with bosses and employees and coworkers and clients. 
Leadership happens in the context of the rest of life. Social relationships, neighbors, places where we find ourselves with people and in God's world. The call on all Christ followers is to also be leaders. To be those that are stewarding whatever God's given us in order to influence others towards Christ's kingdom. I don't just mean evangelism, but I mean all the stuff that we've been talking and singing about all morning. Partnering with God to see his kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To see justice and shalom and peace and reconciliation in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our communities, in our city, in our nation, in our world. To use whatever we have to influence others towards Christ and his kingdom. This is a vision of leadership. And at the very end of this chapter, Paul says that everything he was doing this whole time, as he kind of gives this biographical account of his life and ministry, the whole time all we were doing was encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so what Paul's saying is, this is what I've been up to, using everything I have to influence you all towards Christ and his kingdom. And therefore, we can look through this defense and learn some really important things about what it means to be a Christian leader, okay? So, I've got four. There's probably a lot more, but I'll give you these four. The first is this. To be a Christian leader is to follow Jesus courageously. To follow Jesus courageously. Paul says that when he came to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians, it was a dare, so to speak. He dared to tell you the gospel of Jesus. And he goes, it didn't go so well in Philippi. It didn't go so well. But this is the message and the ministry God's given me, and so I dared to bring it to you as well. To follow Jesus often requires courage. If we're going to follow Jesus, another way of putting it is that he's going to ask us to leave where we are If we're going to go with him, we need to be willing to leave where we are. Does that make sense? Oftentimes, he's going to call us to take steps of faith and obedience, to join him on his mission in the world, and it's not going to be comfortable. And it's going to call us into unfamiliar places. And it may even literally call us to risk our lives for the sake of being part of what he's doing in the world. And Paul goes, that's what this was all about for me. I dared, I dared to tell you the gospel, even though I knew there may be a challenge. When I think about Leroy and Donna and others like them that are diving into this this mess of racial injustice in our country, that's a picture to me of what it looks like to follow Jesus courageously. And so the question I would ask of you today is if there is a courageous step that Jesus is asking you to take, what would it be? If there's a courageous step that Jesus is asking you to take today, what would it be? We've got to be followers before we can be leaders. So listen and obey. First, 
Follow Jesus courageously. Secondly, live with integrity. Live with integrity. Now we understand that for all of us, there's a disparity between what, be, what we believe and how we live. All of us would claim, all of us who would claim Christ as Lord, would say, yeah, I believe that that's true, but there are places in my life where he isn't quite Lord yet. There are places of my life, of my heart, that aren't submitted to his lordship yet. And so this disparity between what we believe or what we claim and how we live is always there for all of us. And the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in forming the image and likeness of Christ and his people is to close that gap. Part by part, to bring to our attention these places where our life and character and thought and emotion and attitude is still inconsistent with the Jesus who we follow. The Spirit brings us along so that we can become a people of integrity. Right? Jesus spoke very harshly against hypocrites. Right? And somehow, 2,000 years later, hypocrisy is one of the charges that's waged against Christians more than anything else. We don't need to argue about that. We can own that, confess it, repent of it, and ask God by his Spirit to make us into people of integrity. And that's what Paul is saying over and over again. He's saying, you've heard all these things about my life and you've heard the things that I preach about Christ and the gospel and the kingdom and then you've actually gotten to see my life as well and he's going, you see how it all fits together and how the accusers are wrong, like they have no basis for their accusations. It's simply not true. Paul lived a life of integrity. And so the second question I have for you is, where in your life is there currently a gap between what you believe and how you live? And how might Jesus be calling you to see transformation in that area? Where in your life is there a gap between how you live and what you believe? Live with integrity. Secondly, or thirdly, sorry, don't be a people pleaser. Don't be a people pleaser. Hate this verse so much. <laughs> verse 4, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So true Christian leadership, to follow Jesus and to lead others towards his kingdom means that we are primarily not ordering our lives around what's going to please those around us or please the public, but to please God. That we are not making decisions based on what's going to be popular, what's going to be the most culturally acceptable or the most comfortable group to belong, of, belong with, Paul's saying, yeah, to be a leader is not to spend your life trying to please people, but to give it to pleasing God. And the assumption is that sometimes following God isn't going to please those around you. Sometimes it's going to be unpopular or not that easy. Um, we spent some time in this verse with our staff here at Antioch this week. On Tuesday afternoon, our whole staff gathers together for a time of scripture and prayer and discussion and 
and planning. And this is where we were, talking about as those in kind of vocational Christian leadership amongst our pastors and directors and assistants here, um, how this is one of the major traps that we can fall into. That people-pleasing can easily become something that, that shapes how we do ministry. Because whether we're leading worship or leading the youth group or leading kids or leading community groups or, or preaching or teaching or whatever we're doing as the staff of this church, I'll be honest, we hope you like us. <laughs> right? Like it'll, this will go much easier, <laughs> go much better if you guys like us and if we say the kinds of things that you want us to say and make the kinds of decisions you want us to make. And Paul understood that temptation, and many of you do, whether you're on a church staff or not, that this desire to be liked, to be accepted, to please the people around you can drive us to really unhealthy places. And so Jesus never calls his followers to please people. He calls us to love them. And we often believe the lie that they're the same thing. He calls us to love, which sometimes means speaking hard truths, which sometimes means telling people things that they don't want to hear. It sometimes means following the promptings of the Spirit towards things that not everybody's going to get on board with. And so... What I told the staff this week and what I'll tell you as well is that as one of your pastors and as your leaders here, we will always be your servants, but you will never be our masters. We will serve God. We will strive to serve Christ, to line our lives up with his and to be about his things. And hopefully you still like us. That'd be cool too. Finally, number four, I love this. Paul says that we didn't just share, uh, where am I now? We didn't just share the gospel in verse eight, but we shared our lives as well. So follow Jesus courageously, live with integrity, don't be a people pleaser. Number four, share your life, not just your faith. Share your life, not just your faith. This is the whole basis of why Paul is able to make this argument. He's going, because you saw me. I was in your kitchen. We were on that road trip together. You observed my life, my relationships, my disciplines, my attitudes, my prayers. You were there. You saw it. So for Paul, the gospel has to be embodied. The good news has to be made incarnate. The good news about Jesus can't be separated from the life of Jesus fleshed out in his people. So I don't know about you, but when I'm, it doesn't happen a whole lot in a place like Bend, but in big cities and street corners, football stadiums or concerts, when you see people out there with big signs and bullhorns telling you that God loves you, and that you need to either believe that or go to hell forever, 
right? Telling you to repent or burn. Um, I'm going, yeah, I believe some, some, some version of all of that, but how's that working for you, man? How's that going? Because, yeah, you have words, you have message, some of it maybe even kind of true and biblical, but Paul's saying, I didn't just give you words. I shared my life with you. I gave myself to you. Which is exactly the story of the gospel, isn't it? That in Jesus Christ, the word of God has become flesh. The creator joined humanity. He entered into our world. God doesn't just shout down from heaven, hey, I love you, trust me. He comes and he lives among us and shares his very life. The life of God is opened up to us. And we are recipients of this incredible invitation to join with God and to enjoy this relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit that has existed from all eternity past, the most intimate and loving and beautiful and strong of all relationships. Because of Christ, we are now part of that. Jesus doesn't just tell us that God loves us, but he shows us by giving his life to make us one with him. And by inviting us to be part of what he's doing in the world. And so we are not only recipients of this gospel, but we are also those entrusted with it to take the good news of Jesus and to flesh it out, to let it not just remain in this little box we call religion or spirituality, but to actually allow the very life of Jesus to be formed in us that we somehow miraculously could be used by him to influence others for his kingdom. And so I love this vision, of not just sharing the gospel, but sharing your life as well. Because in order for that to really work, the gospel would have to be true, that Christ is now in us. And for those of us that are trying to influence our non-believing friends or neighbors or, or co-workers towards Christ, if Christ is in us, then as they are, our friends are getting to know us and love us and trust us, they're getting to know and love and trust Christ in us. So what I always say is, don't just invite your friends to church. Invite them to dinner. Don't just share your faith. Share your life. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what he's doing in the world, opening up his kingdom and his glory to all people everywhere and inviting us to be part of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you haven't just told us the good news about God, but that you have come to us in the flesh, lived the life we were supposed to live, died in our place, and now we are united to you, filled with your spirit, and invited to join you on your mission. What a beautiful thing. And so I would pray, Lord God, for myself, for my brothers and sisters here at Antioch, would you work deeply in us 
to form Jesus in us? Would you help us to follow you courageously and live with integrity? Would you help us to strive to please you and you alone? And would you lead us further into this unbelievable invitation to share in your life and to invite others to share in it as well? We would love to see you use us to bring about reconciliation, shalom, to proclaim peace and hope here in Bend and across the nation and around the world. So we submit ourselves, this church, this body to you for the sake of your kingdom and your glory.